This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. When I set my heart on Christ, then I'm able to put to death these wicked passions, these evil things, this fornication, this adultery and idolatry. But the first thing I've got to do is seek Him and set my mind on heaven. I've got to set my mind on pleasing my God rather than conforming to the constricts of man. And that's what He speaks here in these things. It had to be a matter of the heart. As Pastor David continues through the book of Romans, we will learn that it is useless to try and follow rules and regulations apart from abiding in Christ. It must be a matter of the heart, not outward knowledge or guidelines set by a church. When coming to Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and convicts us. Unless we're spending intimate time with the Lord, we will miss out on His guidance. The Lord gives us the power and ability to be able to follow Him. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. Well, let's join Pastor David in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 1, for the conclusion of our message entitled, Not Enough. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul does speak about that there is some intrinsic value in knowledge and ceremony that in and of themselves, they are a good thing. He's not knocking these things. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Well, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. You see, for the Jew, they had knowledge. And what a blessing that knowledge was for them. Because in the knowledge that they had, they had understanding of the law. They had understanding and teachings from the prophets. They had the glorious promises that were theirs because they were Israel. And God had called them and made them a nation out from among all other nations. God chose Israel. Man, what a blessing that was. And for every Jew, they understood that because as a young man, they, as a child, they would be learning the scriptures and learning the scriptures until finally, by the time they got about the age of 13, they would have their bar mitzvah and actually become an adult, a man within the household of Israel. The knowledge was a good thing, Paul is saying. He speaks of the ceremony, though he just speaks only of circumcision. The overall idea is that ceremony, there are good things about ceremony. For the Jew in particular, they had the feast days. And every one of the feast days spoke about the blessing of God in their lives. You would have the feast days of the tabernacles. You would have the Passover. You would have the Feast of Trumpets. You would have all of the glorious feasts that God had given them to, again, remember how God had guarded, protected them, and kept them through the years. Ceremony was a good thing. They also had the temple. And within the temple, all the elements and the instruments of the temple brought them to an understanding that God makes provision for them. We see on this side of the cross how everything within the temple pointed right to Jesus. He was the light of the world. He was the bread of life. He was the ultimate sacrifice for man. And on and on and on again, we see these elements within the temple. So the custom of going to the temple was a good thing. And even circumcision, 
even circumcision, because at a very young age, the child would understand, no, God has a special purpose and plan in my life because I've been born under the household of Israel. It was a good thing for them, but yet, if they didn't receive it, if they didn't accept it, if they didn't take it from the heart, they would miss the meaning. But yet, God had given them this glorious, rich heritage. And Paul isn't knocking that at all. As a matter of fact, he commends them for that rich heritage. Again, I'm reminded of a story, the story of a fellow that was walking through the forest one day, and he found a young eagle on the ground. And the young eagle couldn't quite fly yet. It had apparently fallen out of a high tree. And so the man picked the eagle up and brought it back to his farm and put it there in the chicken coop with all the rest of its chickens. And so he was able to eat the chicken feed, and he was protected in there. And uh, so time went by, and this little eagle began to develop. And he was an odd-looking chicken, but he was he was there with the rest of them, just kind of, again, kind of hanging around with the chickens, eating the chicken feed, and being taken well care of. Well, one day, this uh, wildlife management guy happens to go driving by, and he happens to look over in this chicken coop, and here's this eagle sitting there, and he goes and talks to the farmer, and the farmer explains the situation. He said, but this eagle was born to fly, not to be a chicken like this. And so he took the eagle, and he lifted him up in the air like this, and the eagle just looked around. He saw the chicken feed and saw the other chickens and just dropped back down. So the man says, well, this isn't right. This eagle was designed to fly and not be a chicken. So he took the eagle and he climbed up on top of the farmer's barn and he raised the eagle up and the eagle looked around and hopped off of his uh, hands and down on the roof and then back down on another roof and then finally back down into the yard with the rest of the chickens. And this wildlife management guy says, this isn't right. This is an eagle. It's not a chicken. And so he takes the eagle, puts him in his car and drives up to a high mountain. There on the edge of a cliff reaches that eagle out. And finally that eagle, no longer the, the familiarity of the other chickens and the feed that's there, but now the openness of the skies. Suddenly something clicks in him. And with a scream, finally that eagle spread out its wings and began to soar. He was designed as an eagle, not as a chicken. And yet, because he had been living among the chickens for so long, he didn't know his heritage. You see, the Jews had allowed themselves to live among the pagans and the non-believers for so long, and that they had literally brought their own customs and mixed them in with everything else to the point that they suddenly started losing the even the understanding of their heritage. So, you know, heritage in and of itself is not Enough. We've got to move on even beyond that. Paul begins to show us that there's a greater need, a, a deeper need that we have in verses 3 through 8. He speaks for, what if some did not believe? And will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Well, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteous, unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? 
For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Paul speaks to them about the fact that, you know what, there are others that are saying that because I'm speaking of grace rather than the law, then they're saying that I'm saying that the law is of no value at all. I'm saying that you can just go and live any way that you want to. That's not true. That's not what Paul was saying. As a matter of fact, in Philippians, he speaks about not only the the heritage that he has, but again, his understanding of it. In Philippians 3, he speaks about, though I also may have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me? This knowledge, this ceremony, this heritage. These I counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, and some versions give it the real word, dung. I count them as manure, that I may gain Christ. As he taught these things, people would come and say, yes, but you're blaspheming God, and you're telling people to go and live any way that they want to. But that's not what Paul had in mind. As a matter of fact, Colossians 2, and I'm going to invite you, if you would, to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Just go to your right a few books. And beginning in verse 18, we read these words. Colossians 2, verse 18. Paul says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from Christ. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now, if we stopped right there and we looked, Paul is saying, why why are you confining yourself to this when people come up to you and say, well, don't do that and don't touch that and don't deal with that and don't taste that? Why are you confining yourself to these things? And so some are saying, well, Paul is saying we can go out and do anything that we want. But that's not what he said. He said what it becomes is then an outward structure with no inward change. That's why when we look at this, we have to understand... All of Colossians, just like all of the letters, are letters. He didn't chapter them and verse them. He wrote them as a letter. So we cannot stop at verse 23 of chapter 2. We need to move into chapter 3 here in Colossians where he says, 
If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. And down in verse 5 it says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. This fornication, this uncleanness, this passion, the evil desire, covetousness, and idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So on one hand, Paul is saying, for someone to come and tell you, don't do this, don't do that, fit into this mold, that becomes absolutely useless. It becomes the vain philosophies of man. There are churches even within this town that before you can become a member, you have to sign a sheet that says, I will not, I will not, I will not do these things. Beloved, what Paul is saying, those things have absolutely no value. The value is, is when I set my mind on things above. When I set my heart on Christ, then I'm able to put to death these wicked passions, these evil things, this fornication, this adultery and idolatry. But the first thing I've got to do is seek Him and set my mind on heaven. I've got to set my mind on pleasing my God rather than conforming to the constricts of man. And that's what he speaks here in these things. It had to be a matter of the heart. A matter of the heart. Not outward knowledge. Not outward ceremony. Not even a remembrance of heritage. Not rules and regulations. It has to be a matter of a heart that's given wholly and completely to Christ. Back in Romans, we get to verse 9 through 20 and we realize that the need is universal. Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it's written. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19, for we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. He says that not only is the need universal, but the fact is that all are under sin. All are under sin. When we look at this, we understand that Paul speaks, first of all, in that early chapter. Remember, we talked about the glory of God and how the glory of God was demonstrated to all men. So that all men were without excuse. God's glory shines on all of the earth. There's no one around who misses and, uh, and misunderstands the reality that there is someone there. 
uh, speaking with someone after the service last night. They said um, one of the early Indian tribes, as they came across the United States, there was one there who understood, no, it's not a multiple of gods. No, there was one God, and she was worshiping that one God. And it wasn't until she came to a full understanding of who that one God And she came to an understanding of Christ at that point in time. But you can speak to missionary after missionary, to explorer after explorer. And all of these tribes and societies, these hidden groups of people in various parts of the world, yet with an understanding that there is a creator. There is someone who is in charge over them. And we spoke about that a few weeks ago. And that's why we can look and we can see that when Paul says, in, in verse 9 there, that it's both the Jews and the Greeks that are all under sin. Understand what he says there. There is, for the Jews, there was only two groups of people, remember? There were the Jews and everybody else. And for the Greeks, there were two groups of people. There were the Greeks and everybody else. So when he says the Jews and the Greeks, they're all under sin, then Paul is taking, in essence, everybody. And if that's not clear enough, down in verse 23, which we won't get to today, down in verse 22, he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one that is left out of this scenario. There's no one that's going to be guiltless on that day. The fact is, is that all are under sin. And then he lays out those 14 condemnations against all of humanity. And as he begins to speaking these things, he brings out these Old Testament scriptures that the Jews would have known. They would have understood that they came from the books of Psalm. Psalm chapter 53, Psalm chapter 5, Psalm 140, and Isaiah chapter 59. These passages that he gives here, each one declares something that they already knew. They were knowledgeable of these things, and yet they continued to turn their back on God. None righteous, no not one, no one who understands. Well, wait a minute, we're Jews. We're born righteous, aren't we? No, you're not. Each one has to come to faith in Christ. It's not too unlike many in America. Says, well, I was born in America. That kind of makes me one of the favored of God, right? I mean, I was born into a Christian family. That kind of makes me favored, right? No. It's not until each individual personally comes to faith in Christ. If I were to have a grandfather who is a minister of the gospel, and then if my father were a minister of the gospel, and I were a thief, well, because I had a grandfather who was a minister and a father who was a minister, he would not make me a more spiritual thief. He would not make me a holy thief. No, there are no grandchildren in God's kingdom. It's when each one makes that determination in his own heart to receive the gift of God, all that he has for him. As he continues to speak to them, he talks about there in verse 13, their throat is an open tomb, their tongues, with their tongues, they have practiced deceit saying and proclaiming one thing, but in reality living out an entirely other thing. Beloved, that can't be, and how easy it is for us to look, 
at the Jews and say, well, yeah, we see that's exactly them, man. They denied the Messiah. They moved on from that, and they're just, again, they're filled with ceremony and nothing. There's no relationship with him. But what about if we brought it to the church today? If we brought this very message to the church today, and if we went all the way back to the beginning of this morning's message, and we looked over in verse 17 of chapter 2, and it says, indeed, you're called a Christian And you rest on the blood of Christ. And you make your boast in God. You say you know His will and you approve all things that are excellent and are instructed out of the law. And you have confidence that you yourself are a guide to the blind and on and on and on. I wonder how much of this would fit in the church today. I believe that every bit of it would in some way or another. Because there's many within the church today who are very knowledgeable of the Word of God, and yet they don't practice the things that God speaks to their heart and through His Word. There are many that partake of all the ceremonies of the church, and yet outside of the church walls, there is no evidence at all of a changed life. That same condemnation comes. Some, even within the church, have a great and a rich and a glorious heritage. Maybe because of great-grandparents or grandparents or parents who were believers and continued to pray. Or perhaps they were raised early in Sunday school and in church and they, they know a lot of things. There's a rich heritage that they can fall on, but that heritage is not enough. Just like knowledge is not enough, ceremonies is not enough, heritage is not enough. Because the Word says there is none righteous, no, not one. And Paul leaves us with that declaration there that all are guilty. Down in verse 20 where he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. No head knowledge, no ceremony, no heritage will do anything. And literally and truly, man is without hope. Outside of Christ. And that isn't the end of what Paul is writing. And we'll get into the rest of it when, in the next section, he starts speaking about the provision for redemption. The provision for redemption that, that God has made for every man. And as we've said so often, that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the hope that's ours. Beloved, when you speak of your faith in Christ to family, to friends, to co-workers, to neighbors, don't speak about what a great church you have. Don't speak about, I mean, it's okay to do that, but that cannot be the strength of your testimony. I mean, tell them you got a good church and invite them to come with you, that's cool. But that can't be the strength of your testimony. Don't speak about the fact when somebody says, well, tell me about your spiritual life. Oh, well, I was baptized when I was 13. Well, if that's all that happened to you then, that baptism is of absolutely no value. It's when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know when that took place? And I'm not saying the the day, the hour, the exact place, because many people, it's almost a process of things. For some, no, it's an immediate thing. I understand exactly when and where it happened, and I know what was going on that day, and I know where I was. 
My question for you is the testimony of your life. Is the testimony of your life, is it ceremony or is it relationship? Is it just simply knowledge of God's word or is it relationship? Is it heritage that you rest on or is it relationship? God loved the world so much that he sent his only son. Not that we might gain knowledge. Not that we might fulfill some ceremony. Not that we might gain a heritage, but that we might have everlasting life. That's your hope, and it needs to be the hope for every one. That's the only hope that there is for all of humanity. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. What does it mean to confess with the mouth and believe? Well, Pastor David will answer these questions and more as he teaches through the book of Romans. You can get a free copy of today's teaching at our website. Simply log on to www.theopenword.com. That's theopenword.com. Although the open word is a huge blessing, we pray that it's not your only source for the teaching of the word of God. It's our hope that you're attending a church that teaches God's Word from beginning to end. If not, we'd like to invite you to join us at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande for worship on Saturday evenings, Sunday mornings, or Wednesday evenings. For service times, driving directions, and more information, log on to theopenword.com and then follow the link to the church website. Finally, we want to encourage you to follow us on Twitter at The Open Word Radio. Or log on to theopenword.com and follow the link right there on the homepage. Well, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to The Open Word with David Landry. Please join us next time as Pastor David continues teaching verse by verse through the book of Romans. That's next time on The Open Word.